Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast. Today, we are so very thrilled to be joined by Kevin Sayon Charles, who is a bassist uh, based in New York. Um, and we're going to listen to a few pieces, and we're going to chat, and I'm just so thrilled uh, to have you here. And what we usually do uh, is let people do their own bio, let people do their intro. I always say it can be as uh, music-y, non-music-y, queer, non-music queer, as you want it to be. Um, but we just love to hear from people and tell us uh, who you are, where you uh, are based, how you came to play the bass, all the stuff. Hi, what's up, everybody? Um, it's great to meet you over the airwaves. Uh, my name's Kebersound Charles. You can also call me Keb, though. It's a little, a little shorter on emails, as I was telling everybody before. Um, my, my background is that I am a avid listener of music from gospel to counterpoint. I love Mozart, Bach. And I also love uh, all jazz and all gospel that I've, I've ever listened to. I had to grow. I grew up in a, a Jamaican Baptist church, so you know, listening to that type of music was really integral to my my formation as a music musician. Um, currently, I am a solo bassist. I just won um, the. Sphinx Concerto Competition, which was, that was a huge undertaking. Now, that took um, about three years of preparation. Uh, I, the, you know, the piece was the same for about two years, but I had to, uh, <laughs> I had to fail, I had to fail about twice before I got it the third time. So, you know, I had to level up. I had to level up. You got it. Um, another thing about me is that I love anime and I also love bodybuilding. I got COVID during the Omicron surge, and I was like, "This sucks." So you know, I thought, "Why, why not just go to the extreme opposite end and get huge?" Um, I also am non-binary. I use they/them pronouns, and I, you know, I, it's been it's been about a year and a half since I really have come out and, and started to uh, tell people my pronouns in professional settings. But frankly, I've been like this my entire life. You know, I've only recently kind of had the language to describe it. But I've, I've yeah, I've been non-binary my entire life. It's lucky you're building those big muscles because I always think the base is that is that sort of you know you must lift lugging that around all the time. It's kind of like the the worst instrument you can possibly imagine for traveling. I'm sure. Oh yeah, it's, I mean I miss actually. If I had a if I had a nickel for every time I missed a a plane uh, because of my base, I'd have two nickels. But that's like way too much. That's like way too much. <laughs> Especially when you're like about to, you know, perform uh, a piece. I was I was going to Indianapolis to perform um, my new composition with the Indianapolis Symphony, and I ended up getting there like nine hours later because of just you know the bass and blah blah blah. But 
Um, I always try to, you know, the, the, the reason I also started bodybuilding was because I wanted the base to be the easiest thing I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, yeah, that's pretty much sums it up. Fantastic. Great intro. Very well done. Um, so how did, how, how did you actually get into the playing the bass, though? That kind of, you know, because it doesn't seem to me one of those instruments, or maybe it was bass guitar or something, but it seems like a, not a, you know, it's, it's not a normal instrument kids pick up and play. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no like, um, there's no recorder to double bass pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so you know, I was actually just thinking about this with my friends, and and I think the fact that I play the double bass is mostly sort of it's it's sort of coincidence. But you know, there were several things that had to have happened. You know, my so the first thing that happened was I had to have gone to the school that offered classical music in the first place. Then I had to, um, you know, my my when I first got there, I wanted to take the computer. Uh, engineering or computer design course, something like that. Uh, mostly because I wanted to play Halo on the computer. Um, and my, my, my grandma uh, instantly was like, nope, 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 nope. So, you know, I had to have my grandma deny me <laughs> Halo time. Uh, so then, you know, I got to, I got, you know, those, those two things happened and then I got to the class and I'd always had this dream of playing the flute. Um, it was a string orchestra class, um, and then finally, you know, I was the tallest kid, so it was just kind of a, a no-brainer, and I just sort of ended up at the bass. But you know, as soon as I touched the bass, I was like, "Oh, this is it! This I'm playing this thing forever." I used to actually walk around with I used to walk around with rubber bands tied around my fingers to try and simulate the different pitches with the bass. And I would kind mm -hmm. of you know, elongate or shorten my fingers when I was in sixth grade to like, you know, get a higher or lower pitch. I don't know how the heck I thought about this, but it was, yeah. <laughs> that's got to go into some pedagogy book somewhere that, that there's some base pedagogist who's like, that's the ticket. That's how to do this. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the other really thing, interesting thing I think about bass is, and I think about this as a musician, that like bass is such a... A universal, and it's it's interesting to hear you say that you grew up listening to so many musics and you are such a uh, lover of so many musics because bass is in everything. I mean, I think if you play, um, I'm a clarinetist, like there's such a narrow field of things that clarinet really actually works for. We try and like shoehorn it into things, but uh, <laughs> it has no no basis being some places that it is. Uh, but bass is, is, is literally in everything. There's so many applications and it, it translates so well to so many different things um and i mean as we'll listen to it we're going to listen to some of your pieces uh, your own compositions as well as you playing um i think that's really evident in your playing as well like what do you think about the, the translatability of your instrument i think that every one of the things that i've ever played or listened to informs everything else i see a direct and clear through line for Bach's figured bass lines in all of his pieces to walking bass lines in any jazz stand. I think it's the exact same thing. Obviously, 
you know, set in a different musical context. And then, and then even there's the, there's the whole like concept of, of um, playing swung. And then, you know, in really early Baroque style, it's called Inegal. You know, it's, it's, this, it's the same thing, you know, it's the same thing. So I think every single thing informs the other thing. And I don't think that any one type of music, I, okay. I think there are, I think there are really easy and evident ways to draw through lines between or ostensibly contrasting genres and styles and even musicians. So I think in in that way it translates into. So I play on I play on the show Hades Town. If you're in New York, go check it out. Pretty fun cast, uh, full of a diverse uh, cast racially, and it's got an incredibly diverse cast uh, in the terms of gender makeup. We also had um, the first non-binary. Uh, we call them fates. It's it's a role in the play. It's it was it's. I think it's really cool to be a part of it. And you know, I get to wear a dress on stage, which you know I don't often get to do. Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty easy. I just walked back there. I was like, hey, can I get a dress? And they're like, yeah, sure. So like that was pretty sick. Um, yeah. So like you know, in that show, it's a it's it's solidly you know a musical theater but jazz leaning show. And you know there are places when I get to I get a I get a solo in the beginning of Act Two and um, it's in B minor and you know famous minor key pieces Mozart Forty so I usually you know put a little bit of that in there <laughs> put a little bit of that in there yeah which like I'm sure Hayes Mitchell would appreciate I mean knowing knowing uh, the way she writes that's that that probably makes a lot of sense for a number of reasons so how long have you been playing with Hades Town? It was certainly a, a, a huge adjustment. Um, I'm used to like shedding Bach in my little tiny New York apartment for about two hours at a time, and and really just like dialing it in, and and at a certain point, not looking at the music, not playing exactly what's written, because I think that's what I think that's what any um, good musician realizes is that you don't always have to play what's written. And in, and in fact, the composer is asking you, is begging for you to impart some of your own musical ideas on their piece. Um, but the thing about Hades Town is that I got to play, I got to play. So like, I, I think of it as like an orchestral excerpt, like, I think of it as adjacent to like playing orchestral excerpts. You gotta like, you gotta you gotta nail it a hundred percent of the time, every time under any sort of pressure or duress, and uh, that's not a skill that I had developed until I started playing on Hades Town and having to like play the same show each and every or every time the exact same way in a way that. The band, the audience, and the singers, least of all, would not get freaked out about. I couldn't, um, I couldn't just improvise my own lines, which I did a couple times. I got, you know, I was, <laughs> I got, I was alerted pretty quickly that, uh, you know, that's not, that's not, uh, that's not cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it was a pretty, it was a pretty steep learning curve, but I'm. I'm honestly pretty honored to to even 
have been called to collaborate with such amazing musicians. We should listen to a piece. So uh, you sent us kind of a, um, a few different things. I would love to listen to the Mozart first. Um, because, uh, well, maybe I'll let you, I'll let you kind of prep it for people, but, um, maybe just to hear that side of, uh, quote unquote classical playing first, and then we can kind of, uh, explore a little further, but tell us what, what Mozart and what transcription it is. And so this is Mozart Sonata 301. Um, I am in love with Mozart. I think if he was alive right now, he and I would be like besties. I think, okay. And I don't, I don't know if this is sacrilegious or if this is, you know, um, you guys, y'all at home can tell me, can tell me if I'm any, but I, I think that he and I have similar temperaments. I think we're both like very jovial, silly people. Um, not, you know, I've got a little bit of time left to catch up to him writing wise. Um, but, but I think he's just like such a, He's just such a cool guy, and I think the way that he writes is so um, so r- rhetorical, and I mean that in in the most literal sense. It's like it's very spoken. It seems almost like um, like a like a spiritual that I. It seems like spirituals that I'm very familiar with as as a child, and it also feels like someone speaking. It, it feels like just like a, a regular pattern of speech. Like for example, he always does these like little rhythmic, um, these little rhythmic figures that are like, daddy, 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 and I just think that's so cute because one, no one else does that, and two, like it's just, it's it it's so natural, yeah. So um, I think that's what I try to bring out in this performance. I love the idea of Mozart being cute and being best buds with Mozart. I think that's kind of just lovely. It's, you know, I, I, I think that just says something about what you put into the music. You know, I mean, it's kind of the fun and the, the sort of, you know, breaking down what the traditional stuffiness that we see in a lot of classical music. And that's what I really like. It's this kind of like, yeah, let's throw it out. Yeah, I'm best buds with Mozart. I can do this. It's kind of, for me, it's kind of a nice thing. I think that's really, really fantastic to see. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, like, okay, people that, um, and we can get into this after, but people that I think that, okay, so my favorite, and you know, it's kind of like, I'll be the first one to tell you, Classical music needs to diversify, but then at the same time, like I've been listening to like Mozart, Prokofiev, and Bach. Like I, I think we, I think we as classical musicians, as queer classical musicians, need to like. I think we need to reckon with the fact that we're playing this music and so devoted to it. But I don't know if that specifically precludes us from enjoying it. I just think we need to be vocal and and um, honest about you know, the juxtapositions of uh, our identities and the identities of the people whose music we're playing. But yeah, uh, we can talk about that after we listen to this Mozart. Let's, let's listen to Mozart.
that's a that's a really interesting conversation we were having just before we were listening. That I I am such a fan as like a, a concert programmer and as a performer of uh, not precluding anything, but just anding everything. Like we can listen to Mozart, we can play Mozart, we can play Prokofiev, we can play Bach, but we can also include all of these other things. I, my general ethos is uh, we need more music to be happening in general, and so we don't need to axe anybody unless they're like deeply problematic and should be axed. Um, but we can play everything. We can play more things. We can play uh, Mozart included with other things. Um, and so I'm really happy to hear that you're a, a lover of Mozart still and that you really want to play more Mozart, Prokofiev, of Bach, Brahms, um, everybody because I think there's there is room for for even more I'm curious what you think about and you you started to have the conversation a little bit about like contextualizing and, and having a conversation and having um maybe a like a framework around including these people because you know there is still something to be said for the the conversation of diversifying classical music is still a complicated and messy one um, but I'm curious what your thoughts about like having that conversation is so, let's see. I think that one, uh, so so the ostensible reason for for diversifying classical music, diversifying the the types of classical music that we play and the composers that we play, is to diversify the audience. Right, we want to we want to get more people in the door, and I think that for that to happen, we need to have a multi pronged approach. I think I, I just had an event um, with a group called Chamber Queer, and I, um, you know, I used their logo, and I I thought, okay, like everybody's going to come to this sight reading event, and you know, only queer people came which I was like, you know, sick. I was like, okay, thanks, man, for showing up. Thanks for coming out. Always, you know, you can always count on these people. But I was also like, where is everybody else? Like, why, <laughs> why, you know, do they think that just because it's for queer people that they, that they are not welcome and that they would not, you know, um, that they would not feel comfortable in the space? And I think... For lack of, you know, frankly, we we need to find a way to show everybody that they're welcome in the concert hall. And the way that I do that specifically is by having uh, a varied and a, a really. I think this is, might be an outdated term, but I can't I can't think of anything else at the moment. But a very integrated and representative band of the country that I live in and the city that I live in. So, you know, to me, that means having a lot of people of color, you know, and, and uh, having uh, a lot of gender representation in the band, having different races represented in the band. I think that is paramount to this goal of diversity in classical music. And then when it comes to contextualizing it, I think there are also several things. I think there's the approach that that you you know can can literally say hey we're playing Mozart but we're also playing it with a a, a, a composer of an unrepresented 
or underrepresented um, minority or like identity and you know vi viscerally holding the audience's hand which i think in some cases is is needed um my approach is to let the art and the music speak for itself and to let the people on stage and the, and the environment that i've created speak for itself so i think the obviously the end goal is to normalize you know all things helpful to society normalize ourselves normalize our identities and i think what i'm trying to do is by having trans people represented on stage by having black queer latinx people re represented on stage and then not explicitly stating that uh mm. that we are playing you know uh music of uh you know i'll say it i'll say it dead old white guys <laughs> you say it every podcast yep yeah yeah <laughs> someone someone i home's got the counter put me on there yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. um but i think the the fact that we are such a diverse group of people playing music by uh by old white men but also playing music by by alive not white men i think and then and then and then like marrying it so um convincingly i think the audience will get the message and i i think that i think though those are two sides of the same coin i think we we do in summation i think both things need to happen i think we need to vocally i think we vocally need to say hey it's time to give some space to every to everyone else that hasn't had the time but it's also time to you know present those pieces alongside the canonized repertoire to show that it is the exact same thing i mean a pet peeve of mine is when they'll perform you know the first half is like you know a throwaway piece and then they have like florence price like a five minute piece and then at the end they have like a 50 minute like beethoven symphony or like like two like it's like they put one person of color haphazardly and they're not like actually showing any any like forethought and it's just like come on like at that point i would rather you just not program yeah it's it's kind of thinking who can we who can we throw in who have we got let's just put somebody in as a token at the point and it's kind of it's kind of meaningless really can i ask you one thing though i mean we've talked about this before um that you know being a queer person you bring something special different to your music mm -hmm. i mean you can see that from your performances but from your perspective what do you think you bring Hmm, a little hard one for me. Um, uh, let's see. What do I bring? I think I bring joviality, and I think I bring a level of approachability to the music that is not uh, that is not often seen, and especially not seen in in the highest levels of classical music. I think you know my my mission in as a artist is to 
make classical music rise from whatever percentage of people listen to it now. There's been varying reports. Some say 10, some say one. I'm gonna say one. <laughs> from like from like one percent of the population to twenty-five percent. You know, I, I think I think that's that's reasonable. And the reason being is because we can there there are lots of things that people don't even realize is is classical. Um for example, there's this D'Angelo piece called Really Love, and, and the first minute and a half is this like beautiful like string and guitar arrangement. And I think that solidly fits within the 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 canon of classical music, and yet no one has ever been like, "Oh, this is I love this opus number." You know, what I mean, like people mm. people often draw distinctions when there's there's really not any. And I think my purpose uh, as a soloist and classical musician is to be the forward-facing and approachable person of classical music, sort of like the new generation of, of, of Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe. I think, mm. that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that for classical music, you know, if classical music were to have a Black trans person at the front of it, it would have no choice but to expand its definition of who listens to it and who plays it. I think this is kind of, you know, we've kind of seen, I mean, I, I live in Sweden and and one of the key Swedish people in opera is a gay man. And and he's he's very flamboyant and, and he's widened the audience to opera just because of who he is, you know, he's brought in a wider audience. And it's kind of interesting, you know, I think every time you see somebody um, um, different than the white male, you suddenly expand your audience by 10% or 3% or something. And it, and it kind of, it, it, it kind of brings that new energy when you start seeing other people in the audience, you know, it, it, it used to be, you know, everyone was white and 60. <laughs> you know and now now you start to see younger people and you start to see the more diversity so it's kind i, I kind of think you're right there it, it pulls in this extra people into the, into the into the sphere of influence as it were yeah and i think i think well one that sounds freaking awesome honestly like i'm what okay if i was gonna okay there are a couple places in europe i would totally like just like pursue classical music and i think sweden is one of them i think um, Germany is certainly one of them, and Amsterdam. Those places seem like just like loads of fun and look like they support classical music in a way that, frankly, you know, it's going to be a little hard to get people over here across the pond, as you say, to support. I, I try Germany. I, I think, I think to me, Berlin, I have to, I don't know, Jacob's probably got a view on this, but I, I kind of think Berlin is kind of one of the exciting, diverse places for mm -hmm. for classical and to be honest lots of types of music it's getting like the old berlin types of things and 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 i think that's a fantastic place if you ever get a chance to go there i think it really has that kind of it has some excitement and vibe which i think amsterdam and stockholm don't have so so berlin i think would be a fantastic place i i like it jacob you you've have you been to berlin a little bit, yeah. And I have a friend who's who yeah. lived there for two or three years and worked as a worked as an artist. But I think what was really fascinating about doing uh, these interviews and talking to people from around the world. I mean, we talked to people from 
across North America, the States, Canada, but also Australia, Europe, um, and around. It's it's so funny and interesting the um, the perception of like what what is like uh, support for classical music. What's that kind of tipping point? Um, no one has achieved it. Like we've yet to talk to somebody where somebody's like, oh no, my country is massively in support of classical music and and uh you know i i think we have uh too many people listening to orchestral music i think no one has said that um <laughs> but it's really interesting to hear about people in uh like australia who we were talking to somebody this this is anecdotal we probably will cut this but we were talking to somebody in australia and they were saying like it's just so rough here they they like it cannot get support uh like my 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 new fledgling production company uh it's a year and a half old and they only gave me a quarter of a million dollars to like do this thing it's so tragic and i was like oh my god like that's insane to me but it's it's just such a funny sliding scale that everywhere is so different that um you know, the sphere that you, you live in is just the sphere you live in. And so. Well, I think, I think what it translates to is like financial support from your government, you know, because I think, I, I think it's pretty clear that the quote unquote higher valued members of society get more money for their jobs. So, you know, it's essentially communicating to artists that we're not valued members of society, which I think is pretty bogus because everyone consumes some sort of art at some point in their life. Unless you live in a, like, sterile box, in which case, like, let me know where that is because I'm, I'm trying to move from there. <laughs> but it's true. We have such a, a a performance in arts heavy society across the, across the board that you're right. We, we, um, our, the representation our government pushes towards money is, is their, their way of saying what they, they do and don't value and support. Um, anyway, what were you going to say, Sammy? I just say we, we can go down the political route here and discuss all the things that are wrong in the world and what the three of us would do when we're in charge, if you really want. Okay, this is what I'm doing. Everyone can like, listen to the Bach cantatas every Sunday. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'd agree. You should, you know, I mean, this is one of the things I think we talked about. Uh, I mean, I, I talk about quite a bit is, is, is that, you know, uh, a lot of people just don't even, it doesn't even come across their, their, visibility anymore classical music you know and it's just not even in the language and and kind of you know i'm quite old now so i i kind of it's kind of nice to see younger people getting involved at at trying to get it into those places which really matter and for me that's the young people who are who are not the usual consumers of classical music you know we don't want to be targeting white rich white people they're, they're kind of sorry about this i'm going to just go from one each but you don't really want to be targeting them because they're okay they got that in it's 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 people in the poorer communities who don't know listen to classical music don't have access to instruments and all this kind of thing that we somehow need to to grab and say look this is exciting and you can you can be the future of this you know think what you can do it's kind of yeah only yeah. if only i had the money hmm <laughs> Um, well, I, I think, wow, yeah, I mean, you raise an interesting point. I think that 
Hmm. Well, my, my, as I said earlier, my goal is to just increase, increase, um, self-identified, uh, listenership, right? Like people that would gladly say, oh yeah, I, I listen to classical music. I love classical music. Um, and I think the way to do that is to present it in a different context. And, you know, and that means having people from the community that you want to, uh, invite into your, into your, um, into your concert hall. And, and that's another thing. I think that there, you know, there are, there are lots of different ideas about bringing classical music or, or getting people into classical music. And I think mine solidly fits within the idea that, you know, the concert hall is, is a really cool place. That's, that's a place designed to support the sound of an orchestra. And I think, you know, unfortunately, the cultures surrounding going and attending concerts at a concert hall are uh, pretty stuffy. You know, it's not fun. I don't, I don't really enjoy myself when I go to concert hall. That's why I only listen to classical music on like Spotify or if my friends are playing it at their house. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we've talked about this before. It, it, it is kind of, you know, as you say, the sound, you know, you go to a, a great concert hall and the sound of the orchestra is fantastic and brilliant, yet you've got all this sort of stuffy behavior that doesn't allow you to to applaud or get involved or or actually show any emotion. You know, it's it's kind of like you've got to sit there sort of rigid and and not absorbing it. And that kind of is 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 difficult for me. And I think it's difficult for a lot of people to do that. So I, I went to, that's a, that reminds me of a funny story. So I went to a, I went to a Carnegie show recently and I was sitting with my friend and, you know, like my, my conception of concert halls or, or whenever, you know, if I'm going to go to a concert hall, I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, I'm going to dress how I want. And like, you know, if I think of these, if I think someone played something sweet or like awesome, I'll, you know lightly clap my hand and show support um you know and and i also like read the score and you know just kind of vacillate between different methods of engaging the music and this 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 uh little girl couldn't have been above five was like what are you doing she was like you know that's not the way that is not the way to be at this console hall bro i was like <laughs> i was like wow, oh no <laughs> she's gonna she's gonna be an amazing donor but you know talking seriously i think that one of the things that informs my attitude towards concert halls and, and what we should be doing in them is the fact that i grew up in a jamaican baptist church um, for those of you that haven't been or haven't seen any of these videos on YouTube, you know, it's, it's, it's a participatory activity. You know, everyone, you know, everyone in that sanctuary is involved in the music making. You know, if, sure, there's, there's someone that leads the hymn or, or leads the, the chant, but everyone has license to do whatever they want if 
they see fit, you know, if, and, and that's something that I, I really, really at the core of my being want to replicate, you know, if, if, okay, let's, let's see like a particularly heart-wrenching moment, like, okay, um, hmm, for example, uh, balcony scene from Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet, right, you know, when the cello starts playing, that is a gut-wrenchingly beautiful moment, you know, and like that always makes me tear up and, and you know, want to wave my hand around and say, ooh, that was, you know, and that's something that I, I want people to be able to feel like they can do or like, you know, snap their fingers in the, in the second movement of Prokofiev or, for example, you know, just like dance you know dance if they want to or get up and like you know you know tell their neighbor whoa that was sick or like cool you know mm. where just just be themselves i want the concert hall to just just be inviting and be a place where people feel like they can actually come as they are i lived in texas for a number of years and i got invited to a to a, to a baptist wedding down there and and we're two very staid British people in this in this thing, right? You know, so we go to this wedding, and we have no idea what to expect, and and we're like, you know, we're used to a British wedding where everyone is sort of sat like this, and you get up at a certain time, you sit down at a certain time, you do this at a certain time. It's all it's all choreo, you know, it's all very thing. Anyway, we were to, had no idea what was going on, but I have to say, by the end of it, we were everyone was standing up dancing and all this. It was it was kind of it was it, uh, the word I had was joyous. It was a joyous wedding we went to, and it, and it was one of the, the most fantastic things that ever ha well happened to us because it it actually took us out of ourselves, you know, into a into a different place. And I kind of and the reason I say this is I think it's kind of what you're talking about a little bit. You know, you, it takes you it takes you out of who you are into into a different world and i i i kind of it was kind of fun so i just wanted to bring that one in because it was kind kind of just match what you said that's what i i mean that's what i want to recreate like that's what i want to at least in my concerts i want people to, to sing along clap along dance along if they want whatever I mean, same same conversation though. I mean, one of the uh, other pieces you sent us is uh, participatory. There, there's an element of of like interaction with with performer um, and audience, and I think that's always uh, fascinating what happens. But it but it also really speaks apparently to your ethos as a musician as well. So maybe that's the, the next one we listen to. Do you want to tell us about uh, this? Is your composition? This is your piece. Sure. So this is. Uh, something that I wrote, you know, like two or three days before my graduation recital from Juilliard. Um, it's called Dating in New York. Um, it's incredibly, I think anyone that has ever dated or dated in New York knows that it's just, just it's, it's full of ups and downs and it's totally unpredictable and it's, uh, it's just crazy. And, and I wrote this piece to sort of simulate, you know, how I feel, how I feel, you know, interacting with, with queer people in New York, people that I, my, my community, how I feel about them. And then the participatory, uh, oh, so there's, there's about two, there's two parts. I don't know if you're going to play all of it. Um, but the, the first part is, you know, I think 
for us to 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 engage other audiences, they need to know who's on stage. So I wanted to introduce my besties um, and my my collaborators and amazing musicians that I learn from every day. Um, and then the second one is is the audience participation part, which you know people whenever I whenever I do this sort of thing at concerts, people are always really nervous about like. You know, are they gonna? Are they gonna like say any? Are they gonna sing? Are they gonna sing with us? Um, yeah, they will because people enjoy music, uh, and and you just have to be convincing. And 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 people are on your side. You know, if you're on stage, they're 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 there to listen to you. They're there to participate in your performance. And you know, I've I've always found that it's that you can get people to sing or or participate in your performance incredibly easily that's what i but you know what maybe that's my specific superpower <laughs> i think i think that says something about you kev to be honest i think you just sort of just have this i mean we'll, we'll listen to the piece but it, fabulous rapport i mean i think that's the thing you you managed to build the rapport with the audience which i think is 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 not a not a skill that everyone has certainly so oh. <laughs> so let's let's take a listen to that dating in New York. Okay, so so uh, I wrote this uh, ending progression. Uh, I wanted to experiment with some audience participation, and also I wanted to introduce the band. Uh, I'm Kevin. Thanks for coming to my recital. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, that song, so like when I play at the end of the recital, you know, that I just played, um, what did I just do? I did a concert of, of uh, Schnitka, Sweet in the Old Style, love neoclassical music. Um, I also did a John B. Hedges concerto called 
Him Raising Gracia, which is a gospel-based concerto. I also played the fourth suite, you know, and, and this is exhibiting, uh, marrying these ostensibly contrasting ideas and, and things right next to each other. And I think that that is the central part of my musicianship. But yeah, I mean, at that point, like, uh, I wanted people to just be like dancing out the concert hall and, you know, that's, <laughs> I kind of wanted it to just be like a, you know, just a, just a, just a, um, a nice cathartic release of the evening. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was, I mean, I thought that was really great. I mean, cause it was the, what you finished with, wasn't it? It was the last thing you did. And then you said bye to the audience. So I think that was kind yeah. of like a, as you say, it could have kind of decompressed everybody a bit and they could go, they went away with a smile and a laugh. And that I think was really, really nice. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the point is to kind of, um, I mean, I, I do not want to, I want to take down the barriers of classical music. I think like, you know, for a little like non-binary kid with, you know, whose parents were not into classical music, you know, I had to interact with a lot of people who were not approachable and, and like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't. I would never wish that upon my worst enemy. You know, whenever I'm walking in New York, um, I think I think I can say I'm a pretty um, accomplished classical musician. I think I know exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, I smile at anyone with a, a, a violin or cello or viola on their back. And they always, like, look away. And they're, you know, they're always like, who is this? Like, I'm like, uh, oh, okay. You know, I mean, it's just like, I, I just, I just really want to, you know, if people really cared about inviting people to the concert hall, they would smile at, you know, at people walking by and people who seemed interested in their, in their lifestyle and their art. And that's what I do. Although I will, I will say, um, I am, I am nearing uh, a limit to the amount of times people will ask me. If I chose, if I wish I chose the piccolo, uh, <laughs> come up, with, guys, come up with a new joke, a new joke. I will gladly laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets boring. Yeah. Well, when did you, Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if we touched on this, but okay, you had a family that wasn't into classical music. So mm -hmm. how did you hear it? When did you first sort of, did it come into your vision, as it were, your sat your ears? So my grandma always put on a classical music radio station. So my grandma like always put on NPR and um, the classical music radio station. And, you know, she, although she wasn't into classical music, she was an incredibly, she is an incredibly smart woman and, and really uh, knew what to expose me to. And, and she kind of, I think she just kind of got lucky in that all the things she exposed me to, I was like immediately drawn to. I'm sure that does not happen to every single person, but I, I and her, she and I also lucked out pretty, pretty hard. Um, I also learned music from the New World Symphony in Florida. They were the, I would say, one of the strongest influences on, on me musically. I also went to school at the New World School of the Arts in Florida, and you know, in tandem with lessons from New World Symphony and getting to play music every day at school, I think that's where I kind of went into my own. And then 
you know, I, I when I was in middle school, when I I'd been playing the bass for about two or three years at that point. But when I was in middle school, I was listening to the Brandenburg Concertos on repeat every day, like one through one through six every day. There's a sign of a misspent youth. Yep. <laughs> Tell me about it. I'm, my favorite, okay. Sidebar, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite movement of that is movement uh, three of concerto number four. That is like, um, it's one that goes, I mean, that is like, and that and that makes me think like, okay, these people were certainly trying to get me to dance. You know, Bach was trying to get me to like get up and you know <laughs> throw it around. <laughs> Uptight Luther and Bach was really ready for you to dance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, mm-hmm. what uh, the first piece that you remember being obsessed with was, like when you when your grandmother would put on classical music radio. Oh yeah, the first piece. <laughs> um, Rasfidi, Asian airs and dances. Ooh, that's Ooh. a good one. Yeah, I, it was, yeah, it was on the radio, and I was like, "Yo, what is this? This is cool as heck." Um, it was like I don't even remember what movement it was, but I just was like, "This is like, this is real talk." And I think the thing that interested me so much was that it was like. I mean, obviously, I didn't have the language at that point because I was like a child. But I think the fact that it was neoclassical fit directly in line with my identity as a musician currently. And I think back then as well, um, the fact that it was like really early chord changes, you know, going from like one, four, and, you know, just moving up and forth and, and stuff like that. But it had this like very like large orchestral and like complex texture, I think really interested in me. Yeah. That's a good one. Not many people would say Respighi. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Sammy, what's yours? Do you do you do you remember? Yeah, I do actually, because because my mum always had she had one record of classical music. And so when she ever played she, every Sunday she used to play the same thing. And it was always um, Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto. Mm. Um, so, so that kind of is kind of the bit you, you know, I just remember that it's kind of from my childhood. So you, you kind of have a love for it, you know. So yeah, it's a bit cliche, but you know. <laughs> How about you, Jacob? My grandfather was a huge uh, Rachmaninoff fan. Um, mm. Grampy was like not a musician in any way, shape, or form, and he also had about five classical music records. Um, but one was uh, Rachmaninoff uh, ballads and and uh, piano pieces, and so he would put that on all the time. And so I remember the G minor uh, Rachmaninoff. That's my first one that I really loved. Yeah, I think the thing with only with with my 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 mom only having one classical music is he always had this very strange counterpoint. Of having something classical, then it would go into some rock and roll and, and some Elvis Presley or something. It would come back to Tchaikovsky again. It was kind of a very mixed sort of musical up, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were talking about hearing Elvis Presley and then Tchaikovsky. Um, mm. That's like sort of what my playlist looked like. Like my playlist looked like 
Uh, okay. Let's see. Let's see. I got. I'm gonna. I'm gonna just. This is a a normal. Let's see. This is this is a a normal listening like range. So I have, um, I have <clears throat> Prokofiev Symphony Number no. One, and then I have like D'Angelo. I have. I also listen to a lot of house music. So like right. So like so the order goes: Concerto for five. Tommaso Albanoni and Dancing with Elephants by Rochelle Jordan, which is like a, a, a huge like dance piece. Uh, and then, you know, Love Thing by The Whispers. It's just like a, a very eclectic thing. Yeah, I, I think I think like all those things inform each other and, and frankly they all have the same groove, you know, to me. Mm. To me. Nice. Shall we we've got we've got another piece to listen to. Um would you like to introduce that one, please, Kebby? So the the first part of it is called uh, okay. The piece is called Coral Chacon. Um, I kind of renamed it recently to be Dance Sweet, but honestly, you know, kind of a working title. It might just I, I'm kind of sidebar. I kind of dig like the 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 like the naming of pieces as like Concerto One or Two or like Invention Three. Because then it's just like, this is it. <laughs> this is this is my art. Um, it's like saying like this is instead of like the Mona Lisa. It's just like painting one. That'd be really cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> uh, but so the piece for me centers around getting people to dance. The first half is a chorale in the form of like a jazz or gospel chorale. Something that I would hear at church, pretty much. And then the second one is a dance form called a Chacon repeating uh, form. And then progressively, I draw the um, through line. I really illustrate it uh, through different centuries of music following the same melody and chord progression. Wonderful. Well, let's have a listen.
It, it again strikes me that your music is just so joyous. Like the way you perform, the way you write, it it uh, kind of imbues everything that you do with this levity and this like excitement and, and joyfulness. And I mean, maybe we're we're always trying to eye this conversation, but uh, like bringing in queer joy into music is uh, maybe we we push it too hard. But like I think this is queer joy. This is queer joy in music. Like this is really uh, like your writing is really exciting. Uh, and vibrant, uh, and it's it's just nice and fun to listen to, and I'm sure it's nice and fun to play. But I, I think we forget that as musicians sometimes that um, we we also want to have fun as the person performing. I I think you have fun when you play. I'm assuming that that's correct. Does that, that feel being, correct? Yeah, I I I'm gonna be honest. I don't enjoy practicing, but I do it every day. However, I my favorite part of this career and art form is playing and connecting for people. Mm. That's like, that's the, it all pays off when I go on stage and I get to like, you know, <laughs> it's just be stupid on stage. Yeah. It, it's an underrated feeling. I think many musicians uh, really don't allow themselves to feel like fun and stupid on stage. I think it's really, uh, I think we need to embrace more of, um, yeah, it's a really mm -hmm. joyful thing. I I am just so happy that we uh, 
uh, got a chance to to talk with you today, Kev. It's it's so nice to. Uh, I mean, one of the beautiful things about this podcast is that we get exposed to everybody's different uh, spheres and music and creation and performance. And uh, every time we chat with somebody, it's so nice to um, expand our bubble. Like, it's so nice to to hear what people are up to and um, and share it with everybody else. I mean, you know, sure, it's it's interesting for us, but one of the uh, main points of the podcast is to uh, expose everybody around the world to like queer music making. And so thank you so much for sharing the yeah. music. Yeah, I loved, I loved, let me just say, I loved that. I loved that third piece. I thought, you know, and it, it's your composition. Yeah. And it was, it was really just as Jacob's already said, full of joy and full of fun. And, and it was just, for me, it kept moving all the time. It just wanted, you know, it was never stationary. It always felt like we were going somewhere new and on a little journey. And I loved that as well. And as Jacob says, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It really has been a lot of fun. And um, yeah, hope to hear more, hope to see more. And, and yeah, you know, maybe um, we'll have you back in a little while and you can tell us how you've taken over the world with your, uh, with your, with your bass playing, your double bass playing. It'd be fantastic. Well, of course. And, you know, just a quick thing about the piece is like, that was inspired heavily. I mean, a lot of my music is like trying to get people to dance as we've previously discussed. And as I previously said, you know, I, I love going out to like house clubs and, and, mm. and, and house music venues in New York, which as you know, if, if you didn't know, uh, are historically queer and black. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think that that music is inextricable, inextricable from my composition. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was interesting. I know we got, we're diverting back to the piece again, but but I did actually feel that that as I listened to it, particularly in the second part, that it was had a lot of influences from around the world. I, I, don't, I don't know if that was deliberate, but it it seemed like it came in. You know, at one point, it sounded very what I'd call American, in in the sense of a, a, you know like like I don't know, just there's a very American piece of music. And then it sort of went almost a bit Latin-y to me. It kind of had a, had a little bit of a feel of someone like Manuel de Falla and people like that coming with a bit of that kind of rhythm and this. And, 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 and that was really nice because it sort of, you know, it sort of morphed its way between them. It was, it was lovely. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to just be able to share my music with people in general. And I'm glad that you all liked it. That means a lot. <laughs> We loved it, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Keb, and uh, and good luck in the in the future. And uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you. Thank you. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast, and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.